I do visit her memorial uh, every year on her birthday as best as best I can when I'm in when I'm in town. Mm-hmm. And one year, a number of years ago, I went to Cars to get some flowers. I was just going to leave a, um, a flower, and this very nice lady started talking to me. And I just happened to meet. She goes, "Well, what's the occasion?" And I said, "Oh, I'd, actually, it's going to it's for my sister. She passed away." And she started asking me, and I and when I said my sister's name, she just she just her eyes got wide, and I said, "I'm sorry." And she goes. I got to tell you something. She goes, I was a lowly freshman at Service High, and I remember your sister who was a senior. She says, the thing I remember about your sister was that, so you have to excuse me, I'm getting a little choked up, was that unlike a lot of other people, she would always smile and stop and say hello to me, a lowly freshman. And the way she, she just, you know, I didn't know her at all, but she was this one person who would say hi to me, and she was kind to me for even a moment, mm-hmm. and I'll never forget that. You know, how good, how... It doesn't get any better than that, man. That was former homicide detective Glenn Clinkhart. In 1981, Glenn's older sister was sexually assaulted and murdered at their home in Anchorage, Alaska. She had thrown a party at her house, and after everyone left, a 19-year-old classmate returned. To cover up his crime, he burned down their house. He was later caught and sentenced to 75 years in prison. Glenn says that we can intellectualize why people commit heinous crimes as much as we want to. But the reason is ultimately very simple. People do it because they want to. Now that choice might be corrupted by other things like anger, deviancy, mental illness or drugs. But at the end of the day, it's a conscious choice. The outcome of which is devastating to all those it affects. He says that so often the crime perpetuated on someone becomes their identity. It becomes all-consuming and can result in a lifetime of guilt and bitterness. But recently, Glenn has found ways to let go of those feelings. One way is digitizing all of his dad's 35mm slides. He's going through so many family photos, and it's giving him the opportunity to see his sister through a whole new lens, as the beautiful young woman she was. Years ago, Glenn was teaching a homicide class, and one of his students asked if having a murdered sister made him a better detective, or did it make the job more difficult? He'd never thought about it before that moment, but he'll always remember his response. He said, you don't have to have a murdered sister to be a good homicide detective, but it helps. That became the first sentence in his true crime memoir, Finding Bethany. The book details his upbringing all the way to him becoming a detective for the Anchorage Police Department, with a focus on finding a young woman named Bethany Carrera. He says that, in addition to his sense of duty to her and her family, working Bethany's case, a case that had so many similarities to his sister's, also helped him process his sister's murder. So here he is, Glenn Klinkhart. Welcome to Chattermarks podcast of the Anchorage Museum. Dedicated to exploring Alaska and the Circumpolar North. Through the creative and critical thinking of ideas. Past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. Play it as it goes. How about that? 
Just play it as it goes. Yeah. Okay. You Sounds know, good. The, the, you know, I'll think of it like a test that I didn't study for. Kind of like most of <laughs> high school for me. <laughs> you didn't study at all in high school? Oh, of course I did. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those things where, like like, uh, like I say, you know, tell people I'm a legend in my own mind. So, <laughs> Well, I want to thank you, Glenn, for chatting with me on a Saturday. Well, you know, and I appreciate you being willing to take the time to, uh, to you know, to talk with me. And, and, and it is early, you know, on a Saturday. So thank you. Yeah, no, no problem. You know, the other day we were talking and you said that over 18 production companies want you to do stuff with them, but you've turned them down because you're happy where you're at right now and you don't see any point in trying to do more. Can you explain that? Well, first of all, you know, 18 sounds like a lot, but it, I almost got to be the point where I kept, I, I kept a list just because it was like a game because especially in the last couple of years where everybody in Hollywood and New York is trying to make the next Kardashian show or whatever, and it's all these reality folks, and it just, I would get these text messages, I'd get these emails, I'd get phone calls, and it got to be almost comical. Um, and some of them were well-meaning, but it just, it just got to be the point where they were like, Hey, here's an idea you've never heard. And I'm like, well, I've already heard it 12 times. It's, you know, we want to hook you up with some bounty hunter and, uh, and so, you know, and go out there and solve these mysteries or something or find Bigfoot. And I'm just like, yeah, no, not, not interested, you know, not interested. And were those the common things that people were reaching out to you about, you know, these ridiculous ideas about, you know, teaming you up with a bounty hunter or, you know, you going out and trying to find these like mythical creatures. Well, a lot of it was, you know, that they, they, they either read about my book, heard about it, saw the Dateline stuff or the 2020 things. And there was a huge uh, want to find the next um, uh, Alaskan, reality show if you will mm -hmm. and so they, they you'd get these folks that get paid by pitching things and uh it was i, I will tell you this it, it was a real education for me as a longtime detective and law enforcement officer to all of a sudden be kind of thrown into a business model a, a group of people that wanted to essentially um how, how should i say this they were trying to make money off of you i mean mm -hmm. I, I was the i figured out a little a little later that I was the content and they they all wanted to essentially sell me to somebody else and and not really they they the reality stuff is not real that's the first yeah. thing I figured out is that I would I would talk to them and say look you know um, one of the big ideas that I the only reason I was even talking to some of these folks is that we we have a problem with lack of resources and the ability to go out and solve a lot of these cold cases. And that has been one of my passions, has been trying to bring, you know, if I could find a, um, a vehicle where we could essentially put out their information and get input back from people about some of these uh, missing people, some of these unsolved murders in Alaska, especially involving in the you know, indigenous women. Yeah. Um, I see that as a positive, which is probably why I would take the calls but every time I would talk to them about that, they'd be like, oh, yeah, 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 that's great. That's great. However, <laughs> you know, we want to do this and we want to have a partner up with a blonde and, you know, uh, and 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 I'd just be like, but but that's not how it works. And, the, and then they would say, yeah. well, can you promise us that you'll solve one of these? And I'm like, no, that's not how real law enforcement works.
So it was, it, it, it just was really, really interesting to kind of be thrown into that. The good news is, or at least for me, I could tell when people were, were bullshitting me. I mean, I, so they would be talking and talking. I'd be like, you no, you have no idea what you're talking about. You're just making this up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's such an interesting concept that, you know, your reality is butting up against this, uh, this like fake media reality you know they're trying to mold it into this thing that is manufactured but what you're doing is not manufactured exactly uh, you know it it's real and it's and the thing is is you you find out pretty quickly as an investigator that 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 you're dealing with people with real lives these are real incidences and these are also real alaskans and i feel very mm-hmm. protective of of the, of the people that i meet and i work with and i work for and that gets lost. And, and in fact, as I was trying to convince some of these shows, look, I said, you know, I think we there's some great stories here. There's some really great things. But I'm concerned at what point are you taking advantage of these people and their story and their loss? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it's it been this balance. And, and when people say, oh, no, we're, we're going to be very, very respectful. And then you're just like, no, I don't think you're going to. Because as I told one one show, I said, look, you're going to come here for eight weeks and you're going to film, you're going to leave. Mm-hmm. You're, it doesn't matter. But if, it, if there's blowback, it's going to come back on me and the folks that, that are working here and the families. And it doesn't matter to you. You've come and made your money. And so that's another reason why, long story short, I've, I've pretty much said no to all of these because, frankly, they cannot, they, they can promise all they want, but I don't think that they can really deliver because at the end of the day, they don't necessarily, they say they care, mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's just a commodity for them. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder, was there a point probably in the beginning of all of this where maybe you weren't as savvy with like their true intentions? Oh, absolutely. Um, okay. In fact, at one point, we, we did have a, a program that I was really actually excited about having to do, and it was with Netflix. And the idea that we really liked was that we were going to essentially highlight some of these cases while we actually work some of them with the with the troopers. Um, so you get kind of the best of both worlds. I didn't want to do something that was recreational and have actors and stuff like that. Again, I, I, but to be able to actually bring some of these cases forward and have them kind of follow us along while we're working on other cases, I really like that idea because on a place like Netflix, you can have a show, let's say a 30 minute show, that highlights two or three cases, they can sit there on Netflix for years. And mm-hmm. five years from now, somebody could be sitting in a hotel room watching this and going, wait a minute, I remember when my roommate back in, you know, in, in 2013 came back and he had blood on his clothes, said he got into a bar fight, but it was about the same time. It was in the same area. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should call. And to me, that was the point of the whole thing. Um, unfortunately, the uh, again hollywood and 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 people and politics it didn't it didn't go but but i was really that was the one i was really kind of excited about but then i realized it's all talk and 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 until they until they actually are willing to cut a check they're willing to actually bring forth a contract um that's that's where ultimately i said okay this is it's not real until it's actually real. And even then, mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure that I'm going to believe them. So it, it was a, it was a, a bit of a, bu- a bubble for me that burst. Yeah. And this book you're talking about, the one that brought you this attention from, you know, production companies at Netflix and, 
you know, others, that's finding Bethany, right? That's correct. For someone who might not be familiar with that book, can you describe what it's about? Sure. Um, finding Bethany is essentially a true crime memoir. It's, it's, it's my memoir. It kind of starts out with uh, my being born raised here as, as, as uh, was my mom and my grandmother. And uh, it kind of opens up with the idea of people get to meet my family. And unfortunately, uh, at the age of 15, my sister was murdered mm. here uh, in, in Anchorage, sexually assaulted and murdered. And which, again, has a huge uh, impact on people, certainly my family and myself. Yeah. And it kind of moves. I then take you through the point where I then actually become a law enforcement officer and I eventually become a homicide detective. And, you know, the, the journey then ends up that I kind of take the reader through a couple of cases to kind of show them the real story of how we actually work these cases in a, in a very unique place like Alaska. And then I'm kind of going on with my life. And then this this girl, Bethany, comes into my life who is missing. Mm -hmm. And she comes into my life at the uh, at, at the right time because I kind of put a lot of things in the box, you know, forgot about what happened to my sister, all of those other things. And Bethany disappears. And I spend the next year trying to find out what happened to her. And it forced me to have to deal with my own history and, and my own sense of loss. And so I kind of take the reader through that entire journey where at the end, um, and the title kind of says, you know, finding Bethany, but at the end of the day, the story was was really me trying to find myself through this missing girl. And uh, I've just been very, very pleased with the uh, with 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 the book and the feedback and uh, and how it's been uh, perceived by by folks. So it's a uh, it's something that I'm very proud of. As you were writing the book, did you know it would have such a profound impact on your life you know your your understanding of your sister's murder and also the work that you do i didn't i mean there was no plan when i started when i started i just basically wanted to write something that didn't suck uh, <laughs> okay very, very very low standards okay <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> low expectations because i didn't know you know um but i i also felt like you know there was enough information that if I could kind of put something together. So I started out r writing a single uh, story or a short story, if you will, and it had to do with um, a scene in the book where um, I uh, I eventually uh, have, my, have my son and I'm trying and he keeps, every time I come home late at night, if, I, if he wakes up, he asks me, you know, did I find Bethany? So I wrote this short story and I started showing it to some people and they're like, Glenn, you need to expand this. You need to, and, and, and so I was kind of like, okay. And so when I, when I, the problem is, as a detective, you know, you tend to overthink and overanalyze. So I mm -hmm. figured, you know, if I'm going to write something, what I don't want it to do, or what I don't want to do, is I don't want it to be sound like a police report. You know, mm -hmm. I, I exited my emergency vehicle and uh, approached the 1976 Chrysler Cordoba, which was occupied two times. Yeah, not not exactly riveting, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, it's procedural. Um, you're right, exactly. Just the facts. And yeah. so my fear was, you know, would I go that direction? So I did some research. And, you know, would go to bookstores and try to find, go online to see, all right, how do you write a true crime story, a true crime memoir? Um, and the, the, the problem was that um, I, everything seemed very uh, theoretical. 
or educational in the sense that I had to know, you know, how to write proper sentences and, you know, how sentence structure and, and, and things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was concerned I was going to have to go back and go to school to write a book, mm-hmm. you know, and I just didn't have that time with everything else going in my life to be able to do it. So I, I was like, I was almost kind of ready to give up. And then one day I'm, I'm at the bookstore and I see a book in the writing section by a little known author by the name of Stephen King, <laughs> who apparently has written a few uh, books. Yeah, just a couple. Yeah. And it, it, and I, it's called On Writing. Yeah. And I, I kind of flipped through it. No, number one, it wasn't very thick. Yeah. <laughs> Try to be efficient. But what I liked about it was that he essentially says, look, I am, I'm not a genius. I'm not that smart. I can do this. Here's how I do it. It may work for you. It may not. Mm-hmm. So I took it home and I read it and I read it a couple times. And I said to my, after reading it, I realized, okay, th- this is going to be your blueprint. So I literally took everything he said and went through the process. So I t- whenever I, I run into people who are like, oh, I'd always like to write, a, you know, write, write, write something, I'm like, get his book. Mm-hmm. Okay. He doesn't talk down to you. He doesn't make it some big theory or some theatrical thing. Um, he's very hard on himself, as apparently his wife is, who is his editor, mm-hmm. uh, which again, he says that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And so I took pretty much every step through that and I kind of broke it down into pieces and then decided, okay, let's just take this one at a time and and to come back and try to answer your question, Cody. Um, I found that writing it was in one sense um, very literal in that I would follow these steps and I was essentially trying to get from point A to point B, but it wasn't until I actually got the first draft done that I went back to a couple months later, as he tells you to do, to go back to page one again and start mm-hmm. kind of cleaning it up and reading it and seeing that I started to realize that that what I had put on paper was much more than I that I had, had really thought. And ultimately, I was really surprised because later when the book came out, I would have people come to me and ask me questions or tell me things that they got out of the book that I never knew I put in there. Yeah. And, and again, I think that says a lot about, about uh, being able to follow uh, Stephen King's um, kind of blueprint. But it also is that whole thing that comes back to, the, you know, having these pages put together are great. You know, it, it's, it's something greater than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. That's so great that you brought that up because I've read that book twice now and spaced far enough apart to where like my maturity level the first time I was like, this is excellent. And then, you know, it was maybe five, eight years later where I'd been writing more and it continued to mean something to me. So what, what you said that I think was so great and what you were getting to is there's, there's this line, I don't remember exactly what it is verbatim, but he says something along the lines of the most important part about writing is rewriting. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he many times will write a story out and then put it away for (laughs) months or even a year or maybe years in some situations and he'll come back to it. And what does he say? Something like 10% of it is good. And that, that to me is like him appreciating the process because some people really fight against the process. And I think that, uh, I can, I can only really speak for myself. I know that I fought against the process for so long, but you know, the older I got and the more attuned with the process I became, 
I started appreciating it and really like embracing it. That's terrific. That's that it, you know, and, and the thing that I, I really liked was the fact that, you know, he said, yeah, to put it away. And so I, again, followed that. I spent six months, six months writing the first draft. Mm -hmm. The other, the other thing that I did that, that he said to do was as you're writing that first draft, give yourself permission to know you're not going to show it to anybody. It, no one will ever see that first draft. And for mm -hmm. some, an A-type personality like me, that was very freeing because there's a lot of self-doubt. There's a lot of concern about what's, you know, is this, is this, I don't want it to suck, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so if the first draft sucks, nobody's going to know about it. And I can decide then, do I keep going or do I just put this on, you know, do I throw this in the, in the, in, in the trash? And so I, one of the interesting things I found was that um, I would sit down every few days. Sometimes, sometimes it would be months before I got back to writing, and I would mm -hmm. start back. I would open up the Word document, and I would scroll right to the bottom. I wouldn't go back on page one or page two. I'd, I'd jump down to page 86, and I'd just start again. Mm -hmm. And and so when I got to about uh, six months to a year of writing the first draft, I did. I put it away. It kind of cleanse your palate and just go, okay, look, I accomplished something. Whether yeah. it's good or not, I don't know. And my big fear was, well, when I go back to this, how bad is it going to suck, right? <laughs> uh, as a writer, you could probably understand that. It's like yeah, that's yeah. self-doubt, and you're like, okay. And and so <clears throat> I finally got up the courage a few months later to sit down. I had a, I had some hours, you know, half a day, and I'm like, okay. And I opened up that document, and for the first time, I started on page one, and I started reading and looking at it. Mm -hmm. And you know, a, an amazing thing happened. It wasn't great, but it didn't suck. And, yeah. at, and as I was kind of going through the first few uh, pages, I realized, you know, the worst thing I did, and this was because there was lots of breaks between writing, was that I would change tense. Well, that's easy to fix, right? Yeah, super easy. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of got in. It was like, okay, th this is this is workable and this is fixable. And this is something that even I, a dumb detective, could kind of make better. And so my goal at that point was to go through it and look at each paragraph and kind of say, okay, how can I write this in a better way? How could I take out, you know, kind of like you're speaking, you know, take out the ums and things like that. And and what I did was I, I, I ended up rewriting it and making those changes to what I call my level of incompetence, okay? <laughs> In that I would I would work on a paragraph and I'd rewrite it and I'd go back through and I knew that I was I was reading reaching my level of incompetence when I realized I couldn't make it any better or I ended up writing it right back to where I started if you will yeah you know and so that was also ability for me an A type personality to say okay Glenn you can't do any better let's <laughs> move on and see see and see where this goes so you know not that I'm saying this is the best way to do it it's just how I did it yeah. Yeah, I think that that self-deprecation and maybe even just understanding yourself and your own abilities. But then also something that I found that is so important is, and I think this is actually from on writing, is getting back to your voice. Because I think that with me, college kind of homogenized my voice. Mm -hmm. And and I, it, you know, I was still, it still had like that, that, uh, that edge that I guess I appreciate in my own writing, but that edge had dulled. And then I remember reading a few of my past pieces. You know, I, I wrote for my school newspaper 
in high school and going back and like reading those when I was in college, I was like, Oh, I like this voice. You know, Uh I like, I like how authentic this is. And so I needed to kind of combine those two, you know, and I, and I Mm -hmm. feel like it's just an ongoing process and it's going to be like that for the rest of my life. But you know, you can find yourself getting closer and closer to that authentic voice, you know, where you go back and read it and you're like, Oh yeah, that's me. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how I want to sound. See that I think that's really great advice for any writer of any age to consider. And I think one of the things that I, I was happy with was I would friends of mine who would buy the book and they'd come back who knew me would say, you know, Glenn, when I read your book, I could hear you. Yeah. I could literally hear your voice in this and that this was as if you were talking to me. So being able to know that that I didn't try to write like Stephen King. I didn't try to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's that fear that, you know, nobody's going to like it. But, you know, as long as you're trying to be true to that, I think that's that's a super, super important uh, point to make to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Earlier, you said that when you'd come home, your son would ask if you found Bethany. To me, that says that your work not only affects you, but it affects your family. Absolutely. And that's probably another reason why I wanted to write the book. I wanted people to know everybody's used to seeing something on the news. You know, young girl goes missing, uh, you know, mother found dead, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're okay, we got facts. But the one thing about being a homicide detective that I learned is that when somebody is murdered, you as the, as the te- detective, you, you, be, you learn everything there is to know about that person. I know more about Bethany than even her parents knew. Because Mm. in a homicide investigation, you interview and you find evidence uh, uh, from all aspects of people. I mean, we all have different faces, you know. Cody, you 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 have a, a way of communicating with your talking when you're working with with uh, people that you're interviewing. You you mm-hmm. when you when we talk about your significant other, you know, your parents know certain things about you. Your friends know certain things about you. But in a homicide investigation, I learn practically a 360 degree view of somebody. Unfortunately, yeah. you know, they're they're already gone. But in order to help solve, you know, what happened to them, you need you need to do that. And and that was another thing that I wanted to honor, you know, in this case, Bethany and my sister, part of their story was to be able to say they were more than just a headline. They were more than just something on the channel two news at six o'clock, right? And and to bring that together. And and luckily for me, the family was very supportive. And when they read some of the early stuff, they completely um, supported it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah. Um, but but for a lot of people, I, I think them having them understand that uh, there's more to it. I also wanted people to see the frustrations and the and the and the the bad decisions that that uh, that detectives make and the and the good decisions and mm-hmm. the mistakes and the 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 victories as well. Um, mm-hmm. And and to have people know that that there are people that are out there who are going to. And it's interesting because one of the one of the lessons that I've been told about from parents, especially moms who have, who have I had a couple of them say, you know, I had my 16 year old daughter read your book. And I thought, wow, that's, it's kind of heavy book. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and yet they said to me, they said, well, I want my daughter to know that there are people out there who, if something happens, are going to do everything in their power to help them, to mm-hmm. help find them, to help bring some justice. And, and that was not something that I expected anybody to get out of the book because I don't remember putting it in the book. Mm-hmm. 
Do you think learning so much about a person's life as a detective affects how you treat and understand people in your personal life? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I, you know, it's one of those things where, um, and it's, it's interesting because, uh, there's a little, there's a story that I like to tell people when they ask about, you know, the book and how it affected me and what, what, how it made me a better detective was I was teaching a, a, a death investigation homicide class. And one of the students uh, asked me, this is a number of years ago, raised their hand and, and asked me, and they said, Detective Klinkhart is, you know, do you think that having a murdered sister made you a, you know, made you a better detective or was it harder? And I had never been asked that before. I'd never even thought about it before. Mm-hmm. And yet, I remember telling the person, well, you know, you don't have to have a murdered sister to be a good homicide detective, but it helps. Okay. And interesting enough, when I told that story to my editor, he slammed his hand down on the table and he said, that's the first line of your book. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, that's it. That's the story. That's, that is exactly, you just told everybody in one sentence what your journey in the story is about. And, and so I think that that helped me motivate me to say you know i want people to know and i do think now there is a double-edged sword to to that story in that there's also the 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 potential that as a as a detective as a, a law enforcement officer your primary job is to be a neutral objective fact finder okay okay there is no place for uh you know uh, anything other than facts that you can prove even theories can get you in trouble Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, and I talk uh, to my students a lot about that. If you can't prove it, it doesn't matter what you think. Yeah. You know? And so if you are, if you are so emotionally connected to a case or you're, it, it, unfortunately it can easily cloud your judgment and you can make decisions. And that's kind of where I, I also put in the book, where is that line of being an advocate for the victim? and mm -hmm. being a neutral objective fact finder who's ultimately making good decisions for the case in order to bring justice to the family as well as the rest of society. And it's a it's a balancing act, and it's kind of an act that I had to kind of deal with through the entire journey. Were there moments where you found yourself getting too personal? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can't help. I mean, we're, we're human. I Like in, in Bethany's mom's case, I mean, I would talk to her for, you know, every week you know, for, for anywhere from 20 minutes to 30 minutes to an hour. And part of it was just being able to keep that connection. But, you know, after about four or five months of talking to her or not being able to tell her everything we're doing, because again, I can't, you know, yeah. um, it ended up being, well, how are the, how are the, how are your other kids doing? How's your husband doing? How's the family doing? How's the dog doing? So you can't sit there and tell me that you don't f find a positive connection in that. And, um, and yet, at the same time, you have to balance that. One of the big parts of the book came the decision was when we got to the point where, um, well, I should step back and say, you know, I told them, I told her mother, I said, look, you know, when I know whether or not your, your daughter's coming back um, alive, I will let you know. Because mm -hmm. I had kind of made that promise to them. And that... It was just very, it was one of those situations where you have to choose, are you going to be the neutral objective fact finder um, and potentially, uh, you know, don't, you don't want to risk uh, not getting the bad guy versus your promise to a family to let them know 
and have them know first. And so I had to find that balance as to what was good for the case and what was good for me as a human being, mm -hmm. spiritually and ethically. And um, uh, the reader will find out, you know, the, the ultimately the decision that I made. And it may not have been the, the best decision from a detective standpoint and from what, what you get in the law enforcement how to solve a murder book that they hand you. Um, but at the same time, you have to also realize that, you know, you have to go through the rest of your life and, you know, deciding, did I do the right thing for the right reasons? In your experience, what kind of moments are common in homicide investigations in the work of the detective and also in how you communicate with the families of the victims? You know, well, and, and again, this may be uh, one of one of the few real benefits of having been, you know, ha having been involved in a in, in a case like my sister's and, and being mm -hmm. the brother of a murder victim is that you do have an empathy and you do understand. So for me, it was very important um, right away to develop a relationship with, with the family, even though you have to understand that in some cases, a family member may be involved in the case. And so okay. that's where that duality, the right brain, left brain has to be fully functional, yeah. which can be, it can be very, very, I, I've had a few cases where it was very beneficial because I was able to come in uh, and and develop that relationship. And then when I realized pretty quickly, oh, I may be talking to the suspect, that 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 is something that can make you, you know, can then you, lead you to being able to then talk to them and potentially get a confession. On the other hand, as I said earlier, you've got to really watch yourself because if you become too emotionally attached, you you can start to get tunnel vision. Mm. And you can, you can become so, it's, it, it's essentially a uh, cognitive disassociation where basically you, you, you want a certain outcome and so you tend to only look at evidence, if you will, um, of that and you ignore evidence to the contrary of your theory and that's something you have to battle. And so I always say, you, at the end of the day, you have to keep asking yourself, what can you prove? What can mm -hmm. you actually prove? Theories are great. Everybody loves watching you know, the, uh, the murder mystery shows you know, and the things. But at the end of the day, what really matters is what can you prove in a court of law? And oftentimes that's not the same as your gut feeling or what you think happened. Yeah. Earlier you said that there have been moments where you realize you're not talking to the family of the victim anymore. You're talking to the suspect. What's that like? Well, you know, I've had a few instances, and I actually use one of the one of the cases in 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 my um, uh, criminal investigations class that I teach at UAA, and that way, um, essentially, it can it's one of those things where, and again, I think that if you go into an interview with somebody with an open mind, not with a preconceived notion, um, and I've I've seen officers do this. I mean. And it's something that we talk a lot about in that, you know, just because you've arrested, you know, Joe Schmo for burglary 18 times, okay, doesn't mean on the 19th time you talk to him that he's committing a burglary. Mm -hmm. Now, certainly if he's walking down the street with a TV in his hand, you may want to stop and talk to him. But it's also possible that he's moving from an apartment, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so jumping into some conclusion ahead of time is very, very bad. And so what I find is that you go into it, even if you have suspicions, you've got to hear the voice of the person. You've got to get them to talk to you. And what I tell folks is that it's interesting in that when you interview somebody, 
especially in that moment where it may change from them being a witness to a potential suspect, mm-hmm. um, there are essentially three things that, that can, can come from that interview. Number one, um, well, and actually two of the three are actually good for you. Um, of the three things, they can, if they lawyer up and say they don't want to talk to you, well, then you're, you're, you're done. Okay, mm-hmm. that's not really great. But they could talk to you and they could tell you the truth. And the truth is a great thing because you can then take that information and based on other uh, evidence, other witnesses, forensic evidence, you can substantiate that they were telling you the truth. And at the end of the day, that's, again, that's what you're trying to, to elicit. The other thing that is actually good is if they lie to you. Okay. Because because if somebody lies about the whole thing and they talk to you and you tell you all these lies, you have evidence to be able to prove that they're lying. And so getting somebody to talk to you and tell you something, I still prefer that they tell me the truth. Yeah. You know, I, I would even tell suspects, look, you know, uh, you have the right to remain silent and all these other rights, but you know, you also have the right to tell me that you know, your side of the story because everybody has a story. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing that I learned as a, as a homicide detective was that people have to understand that, that there's, there's very few times that I had where the person who committed the murder, I believe, has absolutely no um, redeemable qualities, okay? Okay. Um, there's, there's, again, the world is not black and white. When you read yeah. it in the paper, you, you say, that person is a killer, that person's a murderer, person should go away forever. Okay, you have that right to opinion, but it's based on what facts, Some, something you read in the newspaper. Again, when you're interviewing this person and you're talking to them, and if you're able to get the truth out of them and figure out exactly what really happened, Mm -hmm. it becomes more gray, or at least even the grays become more clear. It's not black and white, which is why, for example, there's a big difference between talking to somebody who murders somebody, chops them up into pieces and puts them in a freezer, which, by the way, I've had two cases like that, Mm. versus... What is also, you know, considered a homicide, and that is somebody was playing with a gun and accidentally shoots their best friend and kills them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and so that's the story. And so, in a sense, I kind of look at these interviews in these cases as your job is to open up all those pages in their lives. Okay. Mm-hmm. And 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 so that you can see the whole picture. And and if you give me a moment, I'll give you a little story that I think really demonstrates that. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had a gentleman who came in who had been arrested by officers for strangling to death his girlfriend. And he came in, and this, this is a gentleman who worked very low-wage uh, uh, type um, of jobs. He was working as a dishwasher. Um, he was in his uh, 50s. And we basically went in. We sat down with him. I read him his Miranda rights. He agreed to talk to us, and I, I did I did a super sneaky law enforcement trick that I, I'll, I'll share with you as long as you promise not to tell anybody about it. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> Our it, secret. Yes, just between you and me and everybody else listening. I, I said, start at the beginning and tell me what happened, mm-hmm. okay? And you would think that he would start with, okay, well, you know, we were at the house, and this happened, or we got in a fight or something. No. He started out, well, you know, when I was eight years old. Huh. And I just, I, I didn't stop him. I thought, okay, let's see where this goes. Um, yeah. And he then, he then began to tell me how at the age of, of eight, his parents uh, were both alcoholics, that he was, he was abused sexually. Hmm. He ended up um, living with his grandfather. He ended up at the age, I think, of 12 or 13, accidentally shooting his best friend with a gun they had found. 
Huh. He then he then went he he then went into the juvenile justice system where he got no education where he basically was uh, incarcerated till he was the age of twenty one got out with no job no education couldn't read couldn't write and he and we spent the next two and a half hours I don't even know that I even asked him a whole lot of questions he just went all the way through and then we got to that night and he talked about it and you know what was really amazing was that at the end of our conversation after about two and a half three hours of talking. We got up to, you know, to, to leave. I told him we were going to take, take him in front of the judge and get his bail set. And, and he, he looked at me and he, and he stuck out his hand and he said, thank you. Huh. And I shook his hand and I said, for what? And he said, for listening. And I realized at that point that um, this may have been one of the first times that somebody actually listened to his story and that everybody has a story. Now, what he did was absolutely wrong, absolutely mm-hmm. against the law, and he needed to he needed to uh, be responsible for it. But I also felt like at the end of that day, we knew we could present to a judge and a jury this man's story. And in fact, at the end of his story, as I'm looking at it from a writer's perspective now, mm-hmm. with, without some intervention, without something else, there was no actual other ending to his story than what what happened that night. You know, you could you could almost see it. Again, that does not take any responsibility for what he did because it was wrong. Mm-hmm. But that's that that was never going to show up in the newspaper the next day. It was never going to be that whole story, and you know, it, it everything in that story was a tragedy. Mm-hmm. You know, him him including. And I think to me, that's where I really realized that, you know, very few things are black are in black and white. But for most people, everybody has a story. You know. Yeah. You know, something I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about and I'm, I'm trying to like form it into a question, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, like workshopping it in my head and let's see if it, okay. if it comes out. <laughs> um, but you said that, and let me know if I'm interpreting this correctly, but you said that there was no other ending to this guy's story. Does that mean that it was inevitable that he would commit murder or that his life would end in tragedy because his past was so tragic as well. It, it's the second part. There's there's okay. no doubt that there was going to be some tragic end. I mean, th- this was this is um, you know a, a man that that uh, you know certainly made lots of bad decisions, but he also had bad things happen to him. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I completely agree. Now, I mean, I can't predict. Nobody can predict uh, you know homicidal tendencies in that in that way. And he didn't actually show any any patterns before, but I will say that that yeah, if if it wasn't him and I in that interview room that night, it would have been him and some other officer in some other place, some other jurisdiction of some sort of bad tragedy, or himself, you know, taking his own life. Mm, okay. So I, I I I you asked that in a really great way, and I think I'm I'm glad that you drilled down into that because I I don't want anybody to come away from our conversation thinking that uh, people with the bad stories are going to end up killing somebody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's plenty of people that do the work, you know, do the work to get the help, whether that's therapy or psychiatry or whatever. And, you know, they, they, they learn to overcome, you know, that trauma from their past. But then there's other people like this guy who kind of became a victim of, uh, a victim of his past, but then he became a perpetrator as well in his future. Correct. Right. And and that's why I say he, he made bad choices. 
And so it, again, it goes back to that idea that everybody want, it makes everybody feel good when they can just say that person's bad because of X. Mm-hmm. But unless you truly understand their whole story and look at it from that perspective, from a 360, if you will, um, it's really hard. Um, and in this day and age, people want simple answers, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and it's interesting. I think one of the other reasons why I, I wrote Finding Bethany was I did want to kind of look back and go, all right, based on my training and experience now as, as a law enforcement officer who's been doing this for like 23 years now, mm-hmm. and I, looking back also at my sister's murder and her death, you know, what, what, what are the lessons there? What are the things that I could kind of tell people? And again, I think that at the end of the day, when I talk to folks about the book and what they got out of it, you know, when people ask me, you know, why do people do things like this? Mm-hmm. I have to give them the best answer and the shortest answer is that they do it because they choose to. Everybody wants, well, it's because of X, because of Y, because at the end of the day, it's about a choice. Now, that choice may be corrupted by malice. It may be corrupted by anger, uh, by deviancy, by, by mental illness, by drugs, by all these other things. But at the end of the day, it's a conscious choice. And mm-hmm. so when I look even at my sister's death, I think at the end of the day, I can, I've come to the conclusion that the man that sexually assaulted murdered him, her did it because he chose to. And for most people, they don't want to hear that. Mm-hmm. Because it, it means for you and I and for people we love, bad things can happen to you and you have absolutely no say in the matter. Yeah. That's being very vulnerable. And we don't necessarily like that. But honestly, that's that's it. That's exactly. People will do these things because they choose to. Yeah. And you may not be able to control. You can control your reaction to it, but you can't control theirs. Yeah. Do you know if your sister's murderer is still alive? Yes, I do. I keep somewhat some tabs on him. He's actually come up for parole. And so I have found myself not once but twice um, going down to uh, where he's he's at in the Seward uh, Correctional Facility down there and uh, testifying. And uh, interesting enough, I put it in my book that uh, because I wanted I also wanted to have kind of a bookend to the to the end of the story was that during some of this, he came up for parole. And uh, one of the more interesting parts of the book was when we were as a family, luckily the state of Alaska has some really good, really strong victim rights. Uh, it's actually a part of the law and the statutes that allow victims to be able to, to be present at these hearings and to have their voice heard, which is really actually, it's been around for quite a while. A lot of states have had to kind of play catch up with what Alaska does. Mm-hmm. But I'll never forget, and I put it specifically in the book, how you could see that during his parole hearing, her murderer could tell it wasn't going very well for him. Mm, okay. And and basically at the end of it, he said, fine. He got You could tell he was mad. He was frustrated. And he's pissed off. And he said, well, fine. If you let me out, I'd probably do it again. Really? Yeah. He said that? Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. What was it like to hear that? Chilling. And I don't get chilled very often. I mean, I, I've heard and seen a lot of things, but that was that was one of those, you know, WTFs. Yeah. You know. And definitely a moment where you and, you know, the justice system is like, this guy is exactly where he needs to be. Yeah. And and, and again, that that reinstilled my feeling that that the system can work. You know, Glenn, I I just can't imagine 
the rage I would feel being in, I'm assuming a, that courtroom and hearing that man say that. I can, I, I, I can understand that now from my perspective. And again, maybe this is because of my years in law enforcement, but it, it, what it did was it solidified that all the things we were asking for, uh, for the judge, or the, the, sorry, the parole board to consider and to not release him, give him more time mm-hmm. was justified. You know, here, you, know, you talk about evidence, there's evidence right there, you know? And so I felt like, you know, that, that justice was served some more. There was some more service there of justice and that he needed some more time. And that, and that from a correctional facility standpoint, there wasn't a lot of correcting going on for him yet. Yeah. You know, now there, certainly I left there thinking, you know, well, Maybe I mean he's right where he needs to be. Yeah. Um, but hopefully he'll realize that uh, maybe maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day. Okay, maybe I need to get my act together for the next time I come up for parole. And you think that even though he said that, he could be considered for parole in the future? Well, I think everybody has to have that. I mean, you know, I'm not one of these hardcore people that you lock them up and throw away the key. Okay. Um, because again, I think that as a human, we have to have some hope. And I think that somebody who's incarcerated, especially somebody who has a long-term incarceration, needs to have that. But again, everything is a decision. Every day you get up, you have to make decisions. Am I going to do something to better myself mm-hmm. and the people around me? Or am I just going to be bitter, angry, um, and lash out? And you know, the, the idea and the reason we have correctional facilities and not prisons is the idea that you know there are plenty of people, and I've met several of them, that went that became incarcerated went to a correctional facility realized the error of their ways for whatever reason they were young it was you know they had a drug problem or whatever and i think that the minute we as a society decide that we don't care about correct trying to correct it mm-hmm. and all we're doing is is putting people into into cells i think there's some, we, we we start losing a little bit of our of our humanity and i will tell you that between being a, a cop for 23 years and being the brother of a murdered sister i have every right to be bitter yeah. angry pissed off and want everybody like him thrown thrown away yeah but that's just not it's not a good healthy way to go through life and I, i'll tell you it, it only reinforces my feeling that nothing helps you appreciate life than dealing a lot with with death i wonder if it took you some time to get there. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And in, and in fact, I kind of hinted it early, um, earlier when we talked about that I kind of put a lot of my sister's history and what, what I went through away. Uh, because, you know, as a young male, you know, we're, we're kind of told, to, you know, quote unquote, the phrase I hate to hear is man up, okay. right? Yeah. Push it down, ignore it. Well, I have since learned that you, you can do that, but it has a way of remanifesting itself in other ways. And so mm-hmm. being able to, unfortunately, what I tell people is you don't, you don't wait 25 years and write a book to get your, <laughs> a, a way to look at what, how you did it and how you're doing it and how you need to be healthier. Um, I don't recommend it. it uh, I was lucky. I, I found some way to, to put that mirror in front of me and look at things and realize, okay, you need to deal with this stuff. I mean, it, it, took, it took a girl named Bethany to force me to, to go back and look at myself and, and, and my past and to find some peace. 
So that's not necessarily the best way. I just happened to, you know, to get lucky. So I, I do tell people, and I also tell family members that, you know, you need to find, you know, your path and you mm-hmm. need to find out good, healthy ways. Cause unfortunately there are also victim families that do go off the deep end, you know, tragedies like, like, uh, uh, incest, mm-hmm. sexual assault, Mm-hmm. DV assault, you know, homicide, missing people. It breaks up families. It breaks yeah. up um, communities. And so, you know, there's a ripple effect that people don't always see and talk about. And so I think having a conversation about some of the ways to be able to understand that, that it, it especially when you, next time you read in the newspaper of a murder of somebody, you know, that's, that's a tragedy. But think about the ripple effect of, of all of the friends, the families, the coworkers that are, mm-hmm. that are going to be affected by, by this one incident that somebody decided to do. Mm-hmm. So you feel like writing Finding Bethany helped you process your sister's murder? Absolutely. Well, it, well, it helped me put it on paper. Bethany helped, gave me, the, was the vehicle to help me start to look at it. The book allowed me to put it on paper and then step back a little bit and realize, okay, how far I had come and what I mm-hmm. needed to do to be able to essentially um, look at why I was feeling the way I did, why I acted the way I did, and, and 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 come to grips with being, you know, the brother and not and feeling at that age that I could have done something, should have done something, should have told somebody, should have been there to protect my sister. All of those things that people go through, Bethany helped me understand that, you know, you can't always be there. You can't always, and that the choices you make are the choices you make. You have to just find some peace in that. And in in, in my case, I was lucky. Bethany gave me a second chance, but not to help uh, myself, but to help somebody else. And in that vehicle, I ended up helping myself, but that was never the intent. So I read that for a long time, you've harbored guilt about having kept this secret from your parents about your sister having a party while you and your family went to Kenai to visit your grandparents. Do you still hold on to that guilt or have you let it go? I have let it go. And I think okay. part of it is also, you know, being able to have the story and see through understanding that, you know, we... We kind of does, you know, the saying is, you know, should, you shouldn't should on yourself. I should have done this. I should have done that. And it's human nature. Mm-hmm. But uh, unless you, you, you step back and you look at things and you realize that, I mean, I think for me, especially as a, as a, as a homicide detective, as, a, as an officer dealing with people who commit crimes, interviewing hundreds and hundreds of people, I, I've come to realize that, you know, there is no definitive answer. Had I been there? Or had I told them, would that have made a difference? Mm-hmm. And in fact, if I had been there, would he have killed me too? Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, you can play those games all day long, but at the end of the day, you have to just say, well, it happened. The question is, what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do today? What are my choices today? Just like my sister's killer gets to decide tomorrow on Sunday what he's going to do with himself. We all have to do that. And for me, it's it's not going back and saying, you know, I should have done this or I should have been there. Um, the question is, what have I learned from it? Mm-hmm. Do you know why your sister's murder burned down your house after he did what he did? Yeah, it's a it's a classic move by a uh, disorganized killer okay. in that uh, he was panicked and ne- needed to uh, destroy evidence. Uh, fire is a very powerful way to get rid of, of evidence, DNA evidence, um, uh, fingerprint evidence. And in fact, um, you'll see in the book that um, the person uh, who... Uh, was responsible for Bethany's disappearance used a fire as well and that was the the first thing that I that made me open up and go okay wait a minute this is a little scary of this coincidence that there was fire involved as well mm-hmm. and so um, the whole idea of somebody using uh, ways of, of trying to essentially hide their tracks whether it's um, disposing of a body or whether it's throwing the gun away um, the use of fire is is very very common although um, I do tell people who are considering it that there's a lot of good evidence that can still be obtained and even the fact that you used fire uh, can uh, can bring uh, uh, suspicion upon certain people in certain ways it's uh, mm-hmm. especially especially when when it's a disorganized crime as the FBI uh, behavioral uh, scientists would call it earlier you said that there are people who have no redeemable qualities could you tell me about those people well I know they're interesting, but they're very few. As okay. I said, it's very few. I mean, when you're talking about, you know, I, I interview a thousand people or I've made hundreds of, of, of arrests, the ones with, you know, basically, again, and maybe I'm falling into that black and white that that person had, you know, but, and I do, I find it to be a very small, and yet our inner our, our inner animal, our instinctiveness wants wants to know about that because we think that we find it interesting and fascinating from a defensive standpoint. Mm-hmm. But again, I keep coming back to more often than not, it's like the gentleman who strangled, you know, his his girlfriend. Everybody mm-hmm. has a story back there, and I and I think even that man has some redeemable qualities and some things. I mean, clearly, he was of the uh, he wanted to tell me his story. That's a redeemable quality there, mm-hmm. and the fact that nobody may have ever listened to his story before. You know, it would have been real easy for me to, to stop him and go, no, I don't want to hear about when you were eight. I want to hear about what you did tonight. Mm-hmm. And, and what does that say to him? It says, I don't care, you know? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a police trick. It wasn't a trick trick. I, I did want to hear. And so that's why I let him, you know, go through. And, and, and frankly, I think those are the people that are, are in the majority. So I try not to worry too much about the very few that have, have little or no redeeming qualities that I see initially. I try to find, and in fact... I tell people when they ask me about my book, it's like one of the things I tried to do in the book was I tried to put a lot of really good things in the book because I think it's very important, especially as a law enforcement officer, that you do what you do a technique that I call look for the miracles, the little miracles in the middle of tragedy. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I think it helps you to stay mentally sane, (laughs) but it also helps empower you to, to try and, and help and to be able to do things. And so there's plenty of people in the book that I wanted to highlight these miracles that happen. For example, um, Bethany's parents, who once they found out that their daughter was missing, they immediately came down from Talkeetna to help uh, try and find her. Well, Billy and Linda Carrera had these two best friends, Butch and Sandy. And 
when when Billy and Linda got here, of course, they, they drove almost immediately down here. They called their best friends who dropped everything. We're talking about they dropped their family, their friends, their jobs. Mm-hmm. And they literally got their, with the clothes on their back. They came down and spent three months down in Anchorage helping create a search party, a search team. They gave up everything, including their livelihood, to help their best friends. Mm-hmm. And I, I like to tell people, I like to say, look, you know, look at that. Do you have friends that would do that for you? Are you the kind of person that would do that for somebody? And so I wanted people to to, to, to meet Butch and Sandy and to see these this amazing couple that would do anything for their friends and their neighbors. And it says a lot about them. It says a lot, it says a lot about the people in Talkeetna. Mm-hmm. And those were the stories within the story that I wanted to honor. And I think finding those little miracles, you know, is, is again, tells the real story of what happens in the middle, middle of terrible tragedies. I mean, it's real easy to write a blood and guts true crime story. Yeah. But that's not what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I don't think that that's what it is most of the time. Mm-mm. No, it's not. Earlier you said that, you know, that, that person who strangled their girlfriend, they had at least one good quality that you recognize, and that was telling the truth. And this ability of yours to recognize to recognize good qualities in criminals reminds me of this thing that documentary director Errol Morris said. He said that some of his best friends are murderers and despicable people. And I'm, and I'm paraphrasing that because I don't remember it exactly, mm-hmm. but... You know, I think that that's because that's who he spends so much of his time with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I I wouldn't say that because, um, I, again, I, th- I think it's a little different from a from a, a director standpoint or somebody who um, essentially is trying to tell the, tell a story. I think for me, I, I, the suspect or the defendant, we, we need to we need to learn everything because that's that part of justice is be able to tell the whole story. Mm-hmm. But what I think is more important for me is to be able to essentially be able to explain to a family what really happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of that is developing, you know, a rapport with with the suspect. And um, I think it's, to me, at the end of the day, there's a reason why every time I would come to work, I would sit down at my desk and I, I didn't keep pictures of all the murders I put in, in prison, like, like awards. Mm-hmm. I had pictures of the victims of the cases I was working mm-hmm. because it reminded me every day who I worked for. I didn't work, I didn't necessarily work for the chief of police, even though, you know, he was my top commander. I didn't work for the city assembly. I didn't work for the mayor of Anchorage. I worked for the, for, for the victim and nobody was going to tell their story unless I got off my butt and got out from that desk and went outside and, and interviewed people and looked for evidence and did all these things. So, you know, for me, it, my perspective is similar, but I think the direction of my perspectives um, a little bit different. You know, I feel like with law enforcement, similar in a lot of ways to healthcare, people who get into it have a personal reason for doing so. Do you have a personal reason for getting into law enforcement? Well, I think that it's real easy to say that you know that I became a, a cop because of my sister's murder. But in reality, it really wasn't. And I think that was actually a good thing because I've talked to people who, uh, who are family members of murdered um, folks or who have somebody close to them, something very bad, who want to become cops. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's very admirable. But I do tell them is 
that should not be your motivation. If your motivation is trying to find some, fill some hole left uh, by you being a victim or a friend of a victim, that's the wrong way. It, it, that actually goes away from being a neutral objective fact finder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was I was very fortunate in that I got a chance to meet several Anchorage police officers um, when I was younger and actually went on some ride alongs with them. And I found some enjoyment in the actual work itself and the things that I was doing. Sure, there was some under underlying things, but it wasn't at the forefront. And so to me, that was an advantage because subconsciously was I was I doing some things maybe or going a direction because of my history? Absolutely. But if that's your focus, you're missing the point. And frankly, I think it, it will hamper you when you're trying to be that neutral, objective fact finder. Mm -hmm. So you didn't like volunteer to be a hall monitor in high school or anything? No. Okay. Okay. No. No, I was into computers. That was my thing. I worked for computer companies and computer stores, and I was all, and that's how I, I met several of the officers who, you know, who come in and buy computers, and, you know, I got to, to, to know them. And, um, and they they would see that I had some customer service uh, abilities. I was able to to problem solve. And when one of them said, "Hey, I think you need to go on a ride along with me," yeah. you know, all my computer buddies were like, "Why would you want to do that?" You know, um, I said, "Well, I, I I just find it interesting." And really, what it is is law enforcement. Um, you know, is about problem solving. In fact, one of my favorite mentors told me he said, "Glenn, being a cop is really easy. You do three things: you go to where there's chaos, you stop the chaos." And you write a report about it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, I think I could do that. Yeah, I think that that actually also gets back to what we were talking about with writing is appreciating the process, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so then in 2000, you created Alaska's first law enforcement computer crime unit. What did that look like? Well, that was kind of a passion for me in that... Um, Although I did have a, I did have a uh, another motivation about it, um, in that as I had mentioned, I, I was lucky because I grew up uh, and went to school in the early '80s when Anchorage decided, and the school district rightly was to put computers in the classroom. We had Apple IIs, IIes. There were computers, and we were really connected, and that was great. I had that computer background, and then I worked for a computer store, and so I got really good at leveraging technology to be able to accomplish things. And when I joined the Anchorage Police Department, I just discovered two things. Number one, they were doing everything on paper, uh, which I thought was bizarre. Uh, <laughs> everything was handwritten. Okay. So the first thing the first thing I did was was get a laptop. I actually put a dot matrix printer in my patrol car and I because heaven forbid they didn't want me to turn it in on, on white paper. It had to be on different colored paper or triplicate. And so all of my reports were going were actually typed, but they were spell checked. And they were also in a database. So I could literally do my reports in my car. At the end of the day, I'd throw my reports in a basket and the supervisors would be like, where did you type these? You know? Yeah. And they, and they were clean and clear. But I also had a database. So I could go back and pull up my, my reports. And, this, and so that was the first indication to them that maybe this whole idea of leveraging technology for law enforcement might be a good idea. I gave uh, the police department, the Anchors Police Department, the software that I wrote. Uh, and it was used for almost a decade to do all of the report writing, huh. which, yeah, I sh like an idiot. I'm, I should have asked for some money, but uh, I didn't. <laughs> so uh, don't take don't take financial advice from me. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but then the other thing was that as a, as a patrol officer, I would go over to talk to the detectives and yeah. 
uh, and kind of and ask advice how to do things. And a couple of them took me under their wing. And one of the things was that when I was introduced to the Crimes Against Children unit, mm-hmm. um, you know, I again, people crimes, you know, and and what they were telling me was, you know, they would go in, they would arrest these guys who were, um, you know, uh, molesting children. And oftentimes the cases came down to a he said, she said, if they couldn't get them to admit something, right? And so, mm-hmm. and then the whole problem of having to put this poor child on the stand, mm-hmm. you know, it was a very tough way to go. And I started yeah. saying, well, these guys have computers now. Have you thought about taking them and looking at them? And they were like, well, we don't know how to do that. And I said, well, let's figure it out. And so I was able to leverage my computer background and knowledge to be able to come up with methods and, and techniques to be able to take that. And the resulting evidence was essentially moving moving that balance so that it wasn't a he said, she said. It was a she said, and he said this, and he has these pictures on there, and this movie on here, and this this communication in an instant message room saying about how he liked you know, that he was sexually attracted to girls. Hmm. And we would present that to the court, and that, that, that young person would never have to generally go on the, on the stand and be grilled by a defense attorney because the evidence then became so overwhelming that they would plead out. They would take plea deals. And so it was a win-win. And it was at that moment we said, hey, we need to be on, you know, just because not every law enforcement agency is doing this, we need to do this. And I'm mm-hmm. one of the things I'm very proud about my legacy there was that we started that, that cybercrime unit, which ultimately a couple of really good officers also started doing online uh, work too, that that Anchorage had one of the first um, law uh, uh, com- computer forensics units and cybercrime units in the in the in the country, and certainly one of the first ones for their size. So I was very, which to this day now they have uh, just a fully functional, amazing group of people that 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 work these cases. But mm-hmm. you know, back then it was completely cutting edge. I'm interested in what that looked like investigating these crimes on the computer back in what year was it i think we started doing that about uh 1998 99 right in then okay you know so right around 2000 and what it looked like was you know there was no now there's specialized software and there's different techniques and we and so we were starting from ground up but one of the smarter things i did and again I realized that there's people who have kind of done this. And the closest thing I could see was how they conducted uh, drug cases where they would uh, run wires and they would gather evidence. They put these things together. And so I, I would and the search warrants were very similar and having to take it, examine, you know, the item. Mm-hmm. So we developed processes. And one of the things that you had that we had to do was was uh, figure out how we could get the information off. And there wasn't software. There weren't there wasn't an app to do that like there might be now. Yeah. I, I literally had to do it if you if you really want to go back to the DOS days and literally yeah. I'm ty- <laughs> I'm ty- I'm typing yeah, DOS commands to be able to get directory listings and printing them out on a dot matrix printer. Yeah. Um it was it was pretty clu- you know kludgy, but it 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 worked. It was a start and it gave us the the ability to say okay, we can get this information. Um and so it was really exciting because we were essentially figuring it out as we went along, we also had no budget. So I would have to beg, borrow, and 
practically steal from other divisions mm-hmm. equipment. We had we had no we had no computers, so I had to build computers, which again I was already adept at. So I mean it really was I was thrown into just a fun place especially in the early days, to try and figure this all out. I'm like, I'm getting paid to chase bad guys and play with computers. I mean, this is awesome. Do you remember what that first court case looked like in Alaska where they used evidence gathered through computers, through the work that you were doing? Well, I know that there had been some, but I but I will say one of the interesting uh, ones was a— um, and again, a lot of these didn't go to didn't go to trial, uh, but they did sometimes try and get the evidence suppressed. Mm-hmm. And part of that was having processes and procedures. We weren't just turning on a computer that we found and then scrolling through things and trying. Uh, we wanted to show that we were being as professional as we could. And so mm-hmm. when we actually provided that to the court, the court would look and see, okay, even though this is new, how is this like I've seen other things like fingerprinting and other forensic stuff? So mm-hmm. we didn't just we were we were tr- although it was leading edge, we still had to we still had to produce to the court that we were following a process that we were documenting how we did it, and then what were the uh, the results of that? Uh, and the court here in Alaska found pretty quickly that that you know these processes were and of course the the other side had every opportunity to um, try to poke holes. And if there were issues that we found out about, we would then adapt and change our processes to fill any particular holes that we might find. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do remember some of the first search warrants that I wrote for for, uh, computer records were very lengthy because back then I had to explain to a judge what AOL was, (laughs) what an IP address was. Um, and, and so I would literally, my actual search warrant was short, but the first 12 pages were educating. And I knew we, I knew that we were getting closer after a year or two of going to judges with my search warrants when the judges were like, you know, you're right. I really hate getting that spam stuff now in my email. Yeah. So, so we were educating the judges too. It was really, we have to say it was, it was, um, a, a little like the wild west, but, um, but it was fun. Yeah. What kind of crimes did you generally see? Um, Most of us were working a lot of the uh, uh, sexual assault cases, especially of of children. So and child pornography Mm. was the big one. And um, that was that was, again, of all the types of cases. I didn't particularly like working the child porn cases because you would end up having to. And this is unfortunately people don't want to hear this, but we would have to go through. Uh-huh. And look at these photographs and, and then eventually a lot of recordings, video of children essentially being sexually assaulted. And what I would have to explain to people is that these aren't just pictures, okay? These are a moment in time of a child's worst nightmare. Yeah. This is where a child is changed physically, emotionally, spiritually. And so we had to come up with processes and ways to secure that information. Also, we had to develop ways for our officers who have to see this every day mm-hmm. to cleanse their palates, to be able to talk about it, to be able to. And so we there, you know, and, and now it's actually standard procedure for um, officers. But back then, one of the concerns was if you're exposed to this every day, I, I didn't believe it was going to make anybody deviant, but. You had to find healthy ways to deal with the stuff that you're dealing with, just as yeah. you had to find healthy ways to deal with dead bodies and yeah. and families and things like that. And so um, those early days, uh, there was a lot of things that we we didn't completely uh, anticipate, but we had to we had to make sure that that we kept our officers um, 
you know, neutral and objective, but at the same time realize we're not robots. Yeah. And how did officers learn how to deal with seeing that stuff? Well, part of it I found for me at least was to work some of those cases, but then I would also go and find hacking cases or credit card fraud, online fraud, hacker, you know, break-ins, things that um, didn't involve images of children being sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. And in fact, frankly, I would, I, I preferred to work the hacker cases because most child pornographers are not very sophisticated. Okay. Mm -hmm. let, let me just say from a intellectual standpoint and a technical standpoint, they're pretty easy. To, to solve, okay? Okay. Uh, but when you're dealing with somebody who actually doesn't want to get caught, somebody who's using encryption, somebody who's using VPN, somebody who is, in, is, is using offshore uh, email accounts, there's somebody, there, there, is, there is an adversary that you're going to have to, you know, bring your A game when you come to work every day. So mm -hmm. I, I, I found those much more challenging, although oftentimes, again, they're, they're a lot more difficult to pursue. What kind of hackers do you see in Alaska? Well, a lot of the hackers aren't in Alaska, but they're they're uh, attacking organizations or people. And of course, it's everything from, you know, the online fraud, somebody busting into your instant messaging or on your Facebook or trying to get you to, you know, to give them a call or to send them a message and then develop a relationship to separate you. So you've got the online fraudsters is one, you know, and then you, you do you have folks that are attempting to gather information from your systems from small businesses, from big businesses, and, and I have worked a lot of those cases as well, that you know anybody who has a, a face or a connection to the internet is potentially uh, a victim of on, you know, online intrusion and loss of data. And the whole idea now, it's, that's the, the latest, greatest thing in the last five years, is uh, identity theft and intrusion and being able to come up with ways to, you know, to stop it. And so I've been very lucky having had that background to be able to be a part of that over the years and to see the change as, as we've moved from a few people with AOL to millions of people on AOL, Yahoo, and all the others that come along. Yeah. And then of course, social media, um, you know, now it's, it's, you know, I don't think there's a, a department that doesn't, that doesn't deal with, you know, online uh, crime. Do you think, the internet is more or less dangerous now than it was when you were working in the computer crime unit. I think it's a different danger. I think that as it's progressed, um, anytime you take a pool of a small number of people, and again, I am, I'm a firm believer that it's less than 10%, maybe even 5% of the population cause 95% of the problem. But when you have a million people online, okay, that's a small group of, of problems, problem children, if you will. You know, you have a billion people. Now you've got a whole, whole. So your your pool of badness has increased, and the people who who have the ability to reach out. That's what I tell a lot of parents when I do internet safety classes. Is, you know, when I grew up, if they wanted to talk to me. They had to ring the house phone, right? And yeah. it, and everybody in the house heard it, and they knew. And you had that long cord, and your parents could hear who you were talking to. Um, that's changed. Now, when you give a cell phone to a child. Anybody in the world technically can have access to your child, and it just it changes the dynamics completely. Mm -hmm. And you know, unfortunately, you know, we can't go into all of that here. But it is another problem that, as a parent, I've seen as an and as an investigator, I've had to, you know, to investigate and deal with it. And yet, I try to be positive, and I look at all of the wonderful things that the technology has also brought us in some ways closer. But it also means that because we are closer, the bad guys can also be closer. Yeah. You know, I'm curious, what kind of people did you work with in the crime unit? You know, how would you describe them? 
Um, I would describe them as they were the 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 officers that gravitated towards that area were the ones that uh, were generally sometimes a little bit younger and not always, but were open to new things and were willing to risk failure. Whereas, you know, you do find just just like in every career and every job, there are those people that that want to come to work, do their job and just be good with that. Mm hmm. Folks that gravitated towards the cybercrime unit were, were, were not those. They were the ones that wanted to push themselves. They were willing to fail, willing to learn new things, willing to change. If this didn't work, could you change to something else? And, um, and, and for me, it was great because the people I got to work with in that area were, in a sense, just like me. They were willing to, to, to go outside their comfort zone and the culture of law enforcement. I mean, mm -hmm. I got to say, I have to say that I was also looked at as why does, why does, investigator Klinkhart want to gather all these pictures, mm -hmm. you know? And so that, that was something that you had to overcome and we overcame it by having checks and balances and proper evidence and procedures and processes. But, you know, there are those people that, and, and cops are, are, are difficult. They, they don't, we don't like change. Change is hard for cops. Okay. You know, <laughs> it, 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 it's not been easy. I mean, like I said, I mean, we, we, we didn't even have computers in the cars until about 15 years ago. Okay. Yeah. You know, and, and that's why I'm running around in a police car with a, with a IBM laptop and a dot matrix printer, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's, it was bleeding edge. So uh, yeah. it's, and it, it takes a while. In fact, oftentimes that even doing the cybercrime stuff was kind of a, you know, prove it to me, show it to me. So we, yeah. we literally not only had to figure out how to do it, but then we had to overcome potential, our own other officers, prosecutors, judges, juries, defense attorneys saying, you know, what is this new stuff, mm -hmm. you know, and should we trust it? Yeah. I feel like we've talked about a few cases so far in this conversation, but are there any cases in general that have stuck out to you or stuck with you? You know, there are. And in fact, people um, will ask me, well, are you thinking about another book? And the answer is, I think about it, but I'm not willing to put the kind of time that it took for me. It took me almost four years to write, edit, and get Finding Bethany published that I don't I don't really see that. Now, I'm about three years from, from fully retiring, and that maybe, just maybe, I might consider it. But there are some stories that, um, I although... I think there's only one Finding Bethany story and my own story where they interconnected. But I mm -hmm. I do like the idea of being able to illustrate not just my cases, but other cases of other officers and other people to show that story behind what you read about. And that there are some amazing officers who have done some amazing work that I've, I've had the pleasure of working with and some some tales uh, and even even some some cases that I think, again, are, are very much like Bethany's, but if, as long as I think that we could put forth um, stories, maybe not even cases, but really stories that tell um, something that people can relate to, that they mm -hmm. can understand or they can learn from, and then I would be very interested in sharing those, those, those type of cases. So I do have some, um, and uh, you know, I think the one that does stand out that I can talk about at this point is, mm -hmm. You know, I'm very, I'm very adamant about cold cases. Cold cases um, are something that are near and dear to my heart. I actually worked with the troopers a number of years ago after they got rid of their um, their cold case unit um, because of budgetary constraints, and so I went over there to help them you know, kind of put 
a database together and go through some of these cases and try and see what ones they could do. And we even managed because of that, we were able to get a full-time trooper working on cold cases, mm -hmm. uh, which have actually been able to solve a few cases. But there's one in particular that I'm very interested in, and that is um, a case of 12-year-old Shauna Yvonne, who I'm trying to remember what year it was, but it was a quite a long time ago. Um, I have to find my, my notes here somewhere, but she was 12 years old and she was a runaway and she was found uh, dead and murdered uh, in an alley in downtown Anchorage. Mm. And I worked that case as a, as a kind of in between my other work. And I even think that I may even have a suspect in that case, which is why I can't go into too many details. But that mm -hmm. is one that, that if I ever went back in, into, into trying to work that case, I have several ideas and thoughts, but I do think about that case because I think it is solvable. And unfortunately, I don't really think anybody's really working the case. It's, it's, the case is open, which means that, you know, the file's there, but to have somebody actually spend the time to read everything, to come up with some ideas, to do some testing, to go out and talk to some people, and in some cases highlight it, which kind of comes full circle back with what I was trying to do and what we we're talking about with if there's a way that we could promote you know, some of these cases and get the information out there that somebody who knows something might be able to come forward, that mm -hmm. those are the, those are the, those are the stories that I, I find fascinating. I know you can't get into the specifics, but I wonder if you could in general explain what it's like to realize that you might have found a suspect in a cold case. Well, there's a moment where and and it's it's interesting because you know there aren't a lot of aha moments mm -hmm. but every so often you you're going through a case and you see something and there's a connection that you no one else had seen and all of a sudden you have that moment where it's like it's a connection now it doesn't mean you've solved it it just means this is something of really good interest and you have to stop yourself to not get too excited because it's a it's a it's a lead yeah and it's a direction and you know if you get too excited again you can start to get tunnel vision but there's that moment where you go this would definitely fit and in fact you the way the way i look at it is if this person didn't do it part of my job is now going to be to show how they didn't do it mm -hmm. because what a lot of people don't understand in, when it comes to homicide investigation is not only do you have to sh gather all the information put all the pieces together which show clearly this person is responsible for this crime, but you also have to consider all of the other people that that maybe are going to have fingers pointed at them. It's what we call some other dude did it defense, mm -hmm, where okay. the, the person responsible is going to point. So part of your job is to actually do what I call prove a negative, which okay. is one of the hardest things to do is, you know, to, you know, like prove you don't love your, you know, this person. Yeah. Prove you, you know, prove you weren't there that day. Prove, that can be very difficult. It's not impossible, but I oftentimes find myself spending more time proving somebody didn't do it than I than I had to prove somebody who did do it. It's a challenge. Yeah. And, and yet, you know, nobody wants to make a TV show about people who prove somebody didn't do it. Yeah. It's not it's not exciting and thrilling television. So what do you do when you feel like you found a suspect like the case you're talking about. Do you begin keeping an eye on that person or do you just continue focusing on the work or maybe both? Yeah, it's really both. You've got to, you know, a, a, a case has a lot of different 
uh, trails that fall like that go off of it which is why you never want to stay on one trail too long mm-hmm. you've got to you've got to be able to branch out and so yeah the, that's the other thing people see things especially in tv shows where it's very linear but it's not it's really going down these different paths and then coming tr- coming back realizing you went down too far and you got to come back again or go down the same path a couple times to make sure you didn't miss anything and so in that case i began trying to find out everything I could about the suspect. Who was he? Where was he? What was he doing at this time? Which can be very difficult in a cold case because you could be talking about trying to find out. If I was like, I want to find out what was Cody doing 19 years ago in February? Mm-hmm. You know, where were you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, where did you live? Who are your friends? So it it's a, it can be the older the case, sometimes the more difficult that can be. It's easy if the cold case is just a couple years old. And back then, of course, you didn't have the internet. I couldn't. I couldn't grab a computer or look at your cell phone records. I, I'm going to have to go out and talk to people. So you do. You you run you run things in parallel, um, and so trying to keep that all straight, you also have to be relatively organized as as an investigator. So you have to try and keep all of these things straight, which I tell you, you know, given my my limited mental capacities, can, can sometimes be very challenging. And this might just be a tv trope but is there any truth to you know the cork board with the the different colored yarn i have to say that i think if anything i have been a victim of that okay but in but in reality it's actually very helpful and here's why anybody who knows me in any job that i've had especially in the last four or five years realize that i love whiteboards Okay. And the reason I love whiteboards is that I developed this process as a as a detective, especially where you're dealing with a case like a homicide where things are moving really quickly. Yes, there let me there are electronic whiteboards. There are things you can do in <laughs> in, in teams and all this stuff and yeah. and if anybody's a, a a technophile, it's me. I love leveraging technology. However, I do find that when you're dealing with a case, especially a complicated case, the ability to be able to put things on the board. For example, I was always the first one because I lived near the station that when we were called out, I would go to the whiteboard. I would, I'd get hold of dispatch and I'd get, I'd get case numbers and I would start putting certain things on the board, suspect, victim, case number, location, and you'd start putting this stuff on the board. And what I found over the years is that as you take things in and you eliminate things or you talk to people and you're, you're scratching things off and you're starting to put people on that board, mm-hmm. Everybody, anybody who who is intense about their job, you start getting into the details because the details are important, right? Mm-hmm. The problem with that is that if you don't step back out and look at things at 20,000 feet, you'll miss things. So what I always like to say to people is that I will leverage technology everywhere. But when it comes to trying to get my arms around everything, I will whiteboard it or I'll use sticky notes. So and essentially it's the old pin, pin board with strings and photos, but I put yeah. photos up. And so I can uh, mentally, and so you'll see even here in my in my um, office, I've got now the invention of giant post-it notepads that are you know this, that I can write on. I love those too. That I will put all these things here because what it allows you to do is not only be able to see the details of what you've done, but step back and go, where are there holes in this drawing? Where mm-hmm. where are we missing? Who hasn't been interviewed? What hasn't been done? It allows you to step back and look at it take a break from from the minutia and step back and go, okay, what what's the big picture here? What have we missed? 
because at the end of the day, it's never going to be what you find and what you do. It's going to be what you miss that's going to that's going to kill you. Yeah. So yes, there there is there there is some to that, and and again, <laughs> maybe I just bought into it, but as a tool for me, it's it's invaluable. I do it all the time. Yeah. When you realize that another phone call needs to be made in a cold case, what's it like reaching out to these people who this for them has been, you know, this issue has been a part of their distant past for so long? Um, you know, it's interesting. What I have found that that there, there could be a few reactions, but generally speaking, people are very, very nice and, and open and honest. And I, I remember actually calling Shauna Yvonne's mom years ago out of the blue. I was able to track her down. And sure, her response is like most most people, because most people are good and most people. But the fact that somebody cared enough to call them and that there is somebody who's interested in their child's case or their loved one's case gives them that hope, mm-hmm. you know, that they haven't been forgotten. And again, you can't promise them that you're going to solve it or anything else. But just being able to say, hey, look, I have this case. Here's my name. Here's my number. I mean, that is a huge gift that you can give somebody. Mm -hmm. But it's also, as an investigator, you have to remember, that's a responsibility now. You have now made contact with them, and you have now created hope with them Mm -hmm. that maybe something's going to happen. So you have to temper that that hope with some realism. But for most people— they they they're just happy when somebody actually reaches out and tells them that they're interested in their in their in their loved one's story and that as an investigator somebody cares because what happens is for a lot of folks and this isn't just cold cases we're talking about families who just recently had something happen to them or the, and their family having that connection and having that conversation because what happens is everybody you know unless you're a homicide detective they don't know what's going on i've literally talked to family members for two or three hours who then get upset with me and say well listen this is great but you're not doing anything you just spent three hours talking to me and giving me all this stuff and i have to stop whoa hold on you have to understand let me explain to you as i've been talking to you getting to know your story and more about your your loved one there are eight other investigators out there. We've got crime scene team members who have been up all night. We have this, we have that. So I have to put on a little class for them mm-hmm. and help them understand that this isn't like television. We, we're, I'm not the only one. This is a team. I, I do tell people, look, I've never solved a homicide by myself. Now, I'm, I may have taken all the credit, but I've never solved one by myself. That was a, that was a joke, by the way. Um, <laughs> just want to make sure everybody understands. Yeah. I was joking. Um, be, because of that team concept, and so being able to let people know that that there's a lot going on that they don't see. I mean, I can't tell you how many hours I have spent while another detective's talking to the family, mm-hmm. going door to door to door all around the neighborhood, doing neighborhood canvases, and talking to. At the end of the night, you look at your list and you've talked to fifty people. I mean, that's a lot of work, mm-hmm. and but nobody ever sees that. And so to to help the family understand that there's a lot of, of cogs in this in this um, machine. Mm-hmm. So because if you, if you don't, if, if, if families don't understand, they will tend to fill in the blanks, and generally it's not going to be with good stuff. That's where you do see, and I don't see it so much here in Alaska, thank goodness, because I think that there's a lot of respect for, for our law enforcement and the work they do, mm-hmm. but you'll see on places, the cops didn't tell us anything. They're not doing anything, you know, mm. and that's and that's because they, they haven't had somebody sit, tell them, well, here's generally how we do this, and here's what's going on. And and even if it means calling them 
every you know every so often to just say I don't have any new information for you, but I'm here and we're still working. I mean yeah. that's 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 customer service 101, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm sure you've spent so much time talking about and working through your sister's murder, but how often do you remember her as she was in life? You know, it's interesting, probably not a lot until Bethany's case came along. I think I did kind of put it in a box as I describe it. Mm -hmm. And certainly with the book, that helped me. In fact, it was, I have to say, one of the harder things was as I was researching for my book, I got a hold of the troopers because the Alaska State Troopers actually investigated my sister's uh, murder. Mm -hmm. And I got to talk to the investigators um, that, uh, that, that worked her case. I got to actually get the case file. You know, it's, it's not always what you know, it's who you know. Um, and one of the things I specifically asked for, and I, I will, that I, I put in, I kind of used in my book was I went to troopers and I actually was able to go through some of the, what little physical evidence there was left. I went through that. And, and to me, that was really, it was hard, mm-hmm. but I went through it and I looked at it and I actually looked at my sister's case from the eyes of a cold case investigator. At the same time, it was kind of that opening for me of going, okay, Glenn, you haven't dealt with this. And to see, for example, the melted clock that they took from her bedroom, that I remember the clock that was stopped at the moment the fire went, you know, that she was murdered and the fire started, right? Mm-hmm. And to see that that tacky nineteen late 1970s, early 80s carpet that they pulled up, you know, mm-hmm. that still had blood on it. And, you know, part of her, her, her nightgown and... You know, that was a moment of, okay, Glenn, you, you've got to deal with this. And, and so in the last, I mean, since then, so in the last 10, 15 years, now I do, I I have, I'm able to think about her, you know, more often than I ever did. And just, just, it's interesting because just this week I started working on uh, digitizing all of my dad's old uh, 35 millimeter color slides. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and so I've been going through all of the slides and it's been, it's actually, I have to say, if I was to try and do this 10, 15 years ago, I don't know that I would, or even if I, if I, if I wanted to even deal with it now, it's been great because I feel like I'm in a place where not only can I take these images and make them available to my family, to my parents, to my son, uh, to my brother, mm-hmm. But um, I'm also able to look at them through different lenses and to see what a beautiful young lady she was. And although her and I did not get along, we were very close in age. So when you're going to high school together, you know, I know that I was I was the you know, I was the the the, <laughs> the brother that was always wanting to hang out and talk to her friends and be around and be like, <laughs> I, I mean, I know that that was that was where I was. Um, and she was just trying to she was going through her teen angst and wanting to, you know, she, uh, knowing that she had a, a path and she didn't want to be told what to do and all of that emo stuff that, you know, teenagers go through. Yeah. And she was trying to figure out who she was. That's where we were. But I look at it, I can look at it now and go, you know, this is, you know, it was, it was wonderful. We had wonderful times. And as I'm seeing the slides now of the birthday parties and the Christmases and, and all of that, 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 mm-hmm. um, that there was a story there too, that nobody really knows. And and now I'm able to look at it in a, in a much better light. And, and I think, you know, that, that bodes well for my journey, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, and again, correct me if I'm interpreting this incorrectly, but it seems like you are able to repersonalize your sister because so much of your life 
to this point has been about your work as a homicide detective and that can be very analytical Mm -hmm. and now you are kind of revisiting you know your dad's slides and thinking about your sister as a person Exactly, because I think that, again, as we look at at things, whether it's somebody you know who has something terrible happen or what you read in the paper, it's real easy to just put it in a black and white or go box. And I think that's the other problem I see with family, with members of, of, of victims, family members, is that the act upon their family member becomes everything. It mm. becomes all-encompassing. Okay. And, and that's, that, that's human nature. And I think that, that that's what I ha- I did because it became all-encompassing as a teenager. I had to put it away. I had to just not deal with it. Um, then I was kind of forced to later on with Bethany, and I had this reflective period and trying to put it into a book and understand and and forgive myself for what I thought were by mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I but I but I think that yeah that there is there being able to finally lift that shroud and say, you know, her who my sister was, was not about her death. That was a mm-hmm. moment in time that unfortunately defined a lot of things. And, and I do, yeah. I, worry about, I worry about families uh, who go through things or even victims who, you know, who survive terrible things that they then, that, that becomes a definition of who they are. And, mm-hmm. and now I've gotten to the point where my sister's murder was not the definition of who she was. And I've, I've come to realize that. And I think that's, it just took a long time, which is why I also say that for, th- for those people that are listening, that, that um, are relating to this or who, who have friends or family who are going through something, you know, there are resources out there. In fact, I'd like to, to throw a plug out to the state of Alaska, uh, um, uh, victims for Justice Group, which is is designed to be able to help folks, um, victims of of violence. We have organizations there, so I always tell people, don't wait twenty five years and write a book to figure your stuff out. Go out there and, and seek these people out who are more than willing to help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any stories about your sister? <laughs> Yeah, I, I've got a lot of stories about her. I mean, it's 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 one of those things where I think that you know she she was a young woman who, especially now as I look at the slide, she was just coming into adulthood, just becoming a woman, and also starting to try and break those ties from you know mom and dad and brothers. And you know, she had she. It was interesting. Probably one of the best stories was one that actually was another person's perspective. And I'll tell you quickly, I. I do visit her memorial um, every year on her birthday as best as best I can when I'm in when I'm in town. Mm-hmm. And one year, a number of years ago, I went to Cars to get some flowers. I was just going to leave a, um, a flower, and this very nice lady started talking to me. And I just happened to she goes, "Well, what's the occasion?" And I said, "Oh, I'd, actually, it's going to it's for my sister. She passed away." And she started asking me, and I and when I said my sister's name, she just she just her eyes got wide, and I said, "I'm sorry," and she goes. I got to tell you something. She goes, I was a lowly freshman at service high. And I remember your sister who was a senior. She says, the thing I remember about your sister was that, so you have to excuse me, I'm getting a little choked up, was that unlike a lot of other people, she would always smile and stop and say hello to me, a lowly freshman. And the way she, she just, you know, I didn't know her at all, but she was this one person who would say hi to me and she was kind to me for even a moment. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget that. You know, how good, how, it doesn't get any better than that, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And how old were you when, you know, you encountered this woman? Oh, it was probably only about, oh, eight or nine years ago. 
you know, so I didn't hear that story for, you know, 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. That, that must be really special to, to learn something brand new about your sister, you know, that, that far into life after she's been gone. Yeah. Well, and it also reminds me that, that there's a ripple effect, mm -hmm. you know, and that saying that, you know, people don't always remember what you, you know, they will remember how you treated them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's really true. And, and I have to say that whole rest of the day, which would be a, so, a solemn kind of sad day, all of a sudden it was like the sun opened up, you know, mm -hmm. it just, yeah, I will never forget that story about my sister. Do you mind if I ask how old your son is? Uh, let's see. How old is that? He's 24 now. I wonder what it was like when he reached your sister's age, 17 years old. You know, I, I guess I haven't really looked at that. And I think that, um, you know, again, there, I was, we were both at different places at, at those, at those ages, but I, I do have to say that, you know, as a father, you know, and, and as a cop, you, you do look at things a lot differently. And I looked at things, you know, now, and this is why he is, is actually a, a character in the book. And I think that, uh, that when you get a chance to read it, you're going to see that, mm -hmm. you know, that I too had to look at things a little bit differently when you've got this, this young person, whether he's three <laughs> or 23 or 13 mm -hmm. and how, how things affect them that you may not be aware of. And yet at the same time, you know, when, when do you tell them things? Um, I remember that it was a, a number of years ago. Um, you know, he had, he had, he, I remember he had clearly learned things about Bethany's case that I didn't know about either. Somebody had talked to him about it or whatnot, but mm -hmm. he was probably, oh, he was probably about 12 years old and we were walking down, you know, we were at, we were at the, at, at, at the, uh, uh, I was at Lowe's or Home Depot or something. I was there to get something. And I remember him just out of the blue saying, you know, why did this person kill this person? And, you know, clearly, you know, he wanted to talk about it. Now, I think there was a time in my life where I would have said, well, let's just talk about that later. Mm -hmm. But I was glad that I at least had the opportunity. We stopped in the middle of this aisle in this big <laughs> store yeah. And we talked about it. We had, you know, it was an appropriate for his age, but I, it was, since it was important enough for him to say something and ask a question, I felt, you know, that I owed him that. And so I was very glad that I took the time to have that conversation. Now I didn't, I didn't go beyond his question. You know, it's really easy for us to dump on our kids. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do that. And, and yet at the end of it, he was like, oh, okay. And then we went looking for the part we needed. So for me, it was, it was, it was an opportunity to say, okay, Glenn, don't ignore this. <laughs> I know you're busy. Yeah. Take care of it. Don't overshare. But now what you've done is you've given him enough information and you've also given him permission to ask again, mm -hmm. anytime, anywhere. And so I think that's another lesson that if anybody can, can take away from that, I think that's a good thing. Do you remember what was said in that conversation? I do remember parts of it. Um, but let's just say that what I told him was the truth. And yet I also had to pepper it with not too many details because honestly, we all think we, we all think we want to know the gory details, but I'll tell you, I've told people the gory details and then they're sad about that. Yeah. So I've learned that you have to kind of tell people what they're ready for 
And if they have follow-up questions, you know, warn them. And but oftentimes, I will oftentimes, and maybe this just comes from being an an interviewer for a long time, is that may not be the actual question they want to ask. And you and and so you have to. I find that oftentimes I'll say, well, I that's an interesting question. You know, why are you asking that? Mm-hmm. And try to delve into what it is, because maybe that's not really what they want to know. Maybe what they really want to know is X instead of Y. You know. Yeah. But that's just that's just my theory. Do you ever think about what your sister would be doing now? You know, occasionally, but it's not something that I think is is I spend a lot of time on because I think that you can then fall into that sense of, you know, I wish or could have or should have or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I do like to think that she would be uh, she'd have a family, that I would be an uncle, um, that she would be happy and healthy. Uh, but that's what you want for everybody in your life, mm-hmm. you know, and at the end of the day, that's good enough for me. Yeah. Well, Glenn, you know, that's all the questions I have for you. You know, I really want to thank you for sharing your knowledge, your life and your work with me today. You know, there've been a lot of hard questions and I know that you've probably been asked, you know, some form of these many times before, but that doesn't take away from the fact that they are hard questions and I appreciate you answering them. Well, it is interesting because I am more used to asking the questions, Cody, than okay. answering them. So uh, <laughs> they're, they're, I, I'm a little bit out of my comfort zone, but I hope that um, I've been able to give you and your listeners enough information to feel like they've, they've, their time listening to this has been worth it. And I, I certainly hope that you feel like your time has been, been, been worth well spent. I think mine has, and I, I hope that folks um, come away with this with, a, with some, some understanding of how law enforcement works, at least here in Alaska that there are um, little miracles even in the midst of terrible tragedies and that, um, you know, being able to find out the facts and be a neutral objective fact finder is a good thing uh, as long as we don't lose our, our humanity. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors. Mm-hmm.